infallible. I pray that we would bow before it and its life-giving message would change our hearts today. For the glory of Christ we pray. Amen. It was toward the end of World War II in 1944 that a small division of Japanese soldiers were sent to the tiny island of Lubang in the jungles of western Philippines. Their mission was simply this, to spy on the U.S. forces in the area and to conduct guerrilla warfare. And that's exactly what they did. But after a while, the Allied forces defeated the Japanese Imperial Army. And then the troops, the Japanese troops in the Philippines were relieved of their duty. They surrendered. They withdrew from the island. All except a little remnant of people. There was a guy by the name of Lieutenant Hiru Onoda. And a few, his, few of his fellow soldiers, they would not surrender. They hid in the jungles, dismissing the messages of war as being mere propaganda of the enemy. They didn't want to believe the conflict was done. After several years, the, most of those soldiers surrendered, but not Hiru. He continued fighting alone. He evaded capture, survived on food from the jungle, stole food from the soldiers, and hunkered down in the jungles for 29 years after the war was over. Eventually, he was persuaded to come out. It was 1974. His former commanding officer was sent to Lubang, met him, persuaded him that the war was over, had a brief ceremony officially relieving him of his duties three decades after the war was over. On the one hand, he was a hero. Wrote a book called No Surrender, died in Tokyo when he was 91 years old. But on the other hand, don't you think it a bit tragic <laughs> that someone thinks the war is still going on and it's not? He's out of touch with reality, wasting the very best years of his life. And we shake our heads and say, how sad. But is it, isn't it even more tragic when you think of believers who are living in the midst of a war and don't know what's going on? out of touch with reality, wasting the best years of their life, going through life as though everything is fine and not realizing that we are in a war. Well, that's exactly what we find in our study in the book of Ephesians chapter 6. So let me encourage you to turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Julie read so well a moment ago from this section of Scripture, and we're focusing primarily on verse 10 through verse 14. And as you read those verses, it says, Put on the full armor of God, verse 11, and take your stand against the devil, against the devil's schemes. And did you notice in verse 12, we struggle... We are fighting against the principalities and powers, against the powers of darkness, against spiritual forces. All of this talk of conflict is being introduced 
It talks about putting on armor. Now, up to this point, Paul has been dealing with the church, and we've had some gorgeous pictures of the conquest of Christ over sin and the fact that the church can be united. That's a beautiful picture. How good and pleasant it is when brethren dwell together in unity. And Paul said, we are unified. And then Paul talks about harmony in the home in Ephesians chapter 5. How wonderful it is when husband and wife live together as God created them to live. And they lead their family in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Wonderful pictures. And we, we almost get the picture of a beautiful countryside. And then, boom, here's a storm coming. And it really looks dark. And Paul brings us back down to earth slaps us in the face and lets us see the reality of life that behind the surface of things seen, there is a war going on. It was Donald, Donald Gray Barnhouse who wrote a book called The Invisible War, and this is what he is referring to. The spiritual battle is raging, and life is a battle. Now, when you think about it, we shouldn't be too surprised. I mean, when you go to the book of Genesis, chapter 3 and verse 15, that's where the battle started. Man sinned, and when the curse came down upon the serpent, who was the devil himself, the Lord said, I will put enmity, hatred, conflict, struggle between you and the woman, between your offspring, devil, and her offspring, which refers ultimately to Jesus Christ and all believers. The sun will crush your head, but you, the serpent, will bruise his heel. And that's what the devil did to Christ on the cross. He bruised his heel. But understand this. The devil has already received a fatal blow. Jesus, on the cross, crushed his head. He's not yet dead. He continues to go on and act. And the battle is still fierce. But the devil is a defeated foe. You've got this type of terminology all throughout the scripture. By the way, the devil, who is a serpent in the book of Genesis, grows to be a great dragon by the time you get to the book of the Revelation. He doesn't back off in his intensity. He continues to fight. I don't know if you noticed in the papers recently of a man who received a horrible snake bite from a severed snake head. <laughs> I didn't read the article, but I thought that was weird. The guy, somehow the, the, the snake was still acting even though the head had been severed and was able to react and bite. Well, the devil has received a fatal blow, but he is still active and alive. Jesus talks about the battle when in Matthew chapter 16 he says, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now we think of gates as primarily defensive, but in ancient days the gates referred to the control of the city. That's where the elders met. That's where business was done. A strategy was made. And so when Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail against my building the church, he is saying that all the stratagems of, devil, of the devil himself will not stop what I have planned to do. That's war language. 
and you and I are in a battle. And how tragic it is if we wake up every day and go about our way in a pleasant world and forget that we have an enemy who wants to destroy us. Paul talks about the war much in metaphor. Like in 2 Corinthians 10, the weapons of our warfare, he says, are not carnal. Or he says to Timothy, the young pastor he's trying to train and encourage, fight the good, what is it? Fight of faith. Fight the good fight of faith. And then when Paul comes to the end of his life, 2 Timothy 4, he says, I have fought the good fight. And in between, he says in 2 Timothy 2, endure difficulties and hardships like a good soldier. That's the language. So what we're going to be talking about this summer is something that we might call spiritual warfare. This is kind of a series within a series. We're still involved in the wonderful series of the book of Ephesians, but we're going to drag this out a little bit throughout this summer, I hope to your benefit. Not dragging it out in the sense of, wow, this is going to be boring and long, but I hope dragging it out in the sense, there's got to be a better way to say it, uh, in the sense of digging deep, more deeply into these rich truths and preparing ourselves for the spiritual warfare that is. I find it interesting that the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 16, you don't need to turn there, but in 1 Corinthians 16, I'm going to tarry in Ephesus. We've been studying the letter that is written to Ephesus. Ephesus was the fourth largest city in the world, a great metropolis. It had everything in it. Now here's a couple pictures of the ruins that you see in Ephesus. And uh, those pictures give to us the knowledge that this was indeed a rich and vital city. But Paul says, I'm going to tarry in Ephesus for a little bit. And as I do, I'm doing it for this reason. There is a great and effectual door open to me, but there are many adversaries. Wherever you have great opportunity, there is always the opposite, is there not? of some type of challenging difficulty, or in this case, great opposition. And you and I have a wonderful opportunity to share the good news of Christ. We have a wonderful opportunity to live for Christ in a free world, and yet there is great opposition. And that's where the battle goes. As fierce as this spiritual battle is, it's fought as we're going to see in the heavenlies, which is an interesting concept. We'll talk about that. But it's also fought in the day-to-day -day routines of life. And that's what makes it so challenging. So you and I are in a battle. There's a war going on, and we've got to realize it. Now, whenever you go into a war, you've got to understand something about your enemy and how they work. So let's first of all look at the enemy because Paul reveals the enemy to us in verse 11 by simply talking about the devil's schemes. If you go back in Ephesians chapter 2, he'll talk about the God of this world and he'll talk about the ways of the world so the devil has already been introduced. 
In chapter 4, he says, make sure you don't, that you're not motivated and controlled by anger. Because if you are, you give the devil a foothold. That's military language. A beachhead. You have given up some territory from which he can build a command center right in your life. And then to strategically work to destroy all of you. So Paul has mentioned this language before, but again, now it's startling that he says, I've got a final word for you, verse 10. And this word is, you've got an enemy who wants to destroy you. Let's mention a few things about this enemy after doing some reconnaissance in the scriptures and finding out what the Bible says about this enemy. First of all, I simply want to say he's real. It's interesting that Paul doesn't spend any time here talking about his biography. He doesn't in any way explain his origin. He simply mentions his name, the devil, and highlights the fact that the devil is real. Here again, if you're living in the seen world, the unseen world gets distant and abstract, and sometimes you're convinced it doesn't even exist. But the devil is real. It's interesting, if you go through the scriptures and list all the names of the devil, we mentioned the word serpent from Genesis 3, and dragon, the great dragon, from the book of the Revelation. In Revelation, he's called the old serpent. He's called the anointed cherub, the prince of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the god of this age. He is the prince of the demons. The most common name is Satan, which means adversary, and devil, which means slanderer. The scripture calls him the roaring lion who wants to devour, the evil one. Apollyon, who is the destroyer mentioned in Revelation 9, and Abaddon. He is the tempter, the accuser of the brethren, the spirit who works in the sons of disobedience, he is a murderer, a liar, a sinner, an imposter, an oppressor. He is Lucifer, and I'm sure that doesn't exhaust all of the aspects of his character. Did you write all of that down? I simply want you to know he is alive and active. He is real. And can I say it this way? He hates your guts. He wants to wipe you out. That's his plan. Jesus said to Peter, he wants to sift you like weak. And Peter later said, he's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He wants to sift you like wheat and eat you like meat and just destroy you. That's the devil. So he's real. Our battle is not with flesh and blood. Did you notice that? Verse 12. Our struggle is not against human beings. It's against spiritual beings. That's what we need to realize. Led by the master himself, the devil. The second thing that this portion of scripture tells us about our enemy is that he is powerful. There's supernatural power in the devil. 
In fact, he has got an organized structure of authorities and powers. They are, they are well a cohesive unit, well organized, function effectively like a, like a very powerful army. Verse 12 talks about authorities, rulers, powers of this dark world. They're dark powers. Spiritual forces of evil. They're powerful forces. This is an amazing army. And by way of implication, verse 10 says we need to be strong in the Lord's might because we are not strong, but our enemy is. Remember the scripture tells us that even the archangel did not bring railing accusation against the devil because he recognized that this is a powerful foe. And yet you and I waltz in where angels fear to tread. We think we can handle the devil. But we do not realize his amazing power. Frightening power. But that's what we learn about our enemy. Thirdly, we learn that our enemy is evil. The evil powers. Again, the names of the devil bring this out. And you and I have been taught that indeed the devil is evil. But what does evil really mean? It means to go against God. The one who created life and happiness and blessing. And the devil is the opposite. He's the one who fell from his exalted position with the intent to go against God and bring destruction where God has life and misery where God intends happiness. And do we not live in a world that is destroying itself and is filled with misery? The school shootings are a huge tragedy. And there's a lot of ways to approach it. But one of the most important ways is the spiritual answer. And very few people are bringing that up. Leave God out of the world, take God out of the schools, and what do you have left? You have the imposter. And he loves to destroy. Suicide has become almost the rage. It's faddish. Devil loves that. And whenever you get those thoughts that maybe I just should end it, I'll tell you where they come from. Not from the one who created you to give you life, but from the one who is set out to destroy you. The devil is evil. By the way, did you notice <clears throat> that the scripture says that we are to put on the full armor of God, verse 13, so that when the evil day comes, the evil day, the day he is going to establish. What is the evil day? Well, I have to believe that there are two aspects to it. One is eschatological, meaning speaking about the end times. There is coming a final evil day and a great battle that is being planned. But in a very real sense, the evil day is any day when you and I are tempted to sin. When the power of temptation meets the weakness of our soul and the desires of our baser being, 
They come together and suddenly that's the evil day, right? The opportunity for you to do great evil has come upon you. You study wars like the Revolutionary War and the armies were spending so much time preparing for battle. When is the day? When will the enemy engage? And so it is with the devil. The evil day comes when he engages us and seeks to lead us astray. But notice also this about the devil. He is deceitful. That is, he is the master of duplicity. And most of his temptations do not come in the open field like the redcoats in the Revolutionary War marching in a line with bright red coats so the enemy can see. No, the devil is a deceiver. John chapter 8 says he's a liar and he's the father of lies. He's the schemer. The word cunning is used of his activity. The word scheme in verse 11 is the Greek word from which we get our English word method. And it means a strategy. It means a well thought out strategy to fool your foe and defeat them. And the devil is filled with strategies. And one of his greatest strategy, according to 2 Corinthians 11, is that he comes as an angel of light. When indeed he is the prince of darkness, leading the forces of evil and the powers of darkness. But he comes as an angel of light, which means he's often found behind pulpits on a Sunday morning. That's scary. Which means that he often uses religious language to accomplish his purposes. Or good, benevolent language, philanthropic language, the language of a wonderful citizen and a good soul and a gracious neighbor. He promotes goodness as long as it's not righteousness. He comes as an angel of light. He comes as a wolf, but in sheep's clothing. He is deceptive. By the way, this word to scheme or cunning is used earlier in the book of Ephesians about the false teachers who come to deceive. And then we've already hinted on it, but if God's plan is to create, the devil's plan is to destroy. For most of my life, I have quoted John 10.10 like this. Jesus has come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. You know the verse? It's a good verse. I, I, I quote the verse from the middle of the verse. It's just kind of the way I've learned it. But did you know there's a first half to the verse, which says this, the thief comes only to steal and destroy. I have come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. The purpose of the devil as a thief in the night is to rob you of anything that is gracious and good and to destroy you. And you've got to take sides. You can't be Sweden. 
You've got, you can't be neutral. You either follow the devil or you follow the Lord. And the devil has wounded many who have been great saints like Abraham and his lying or David and his adultery or Noah and his drunkenness or his Peter and his disloyalty. <clears throat> many are the wounded because of the devil. So what is our mission? Whenever you join an army or join a team, you've got to have a goal, you've got to have a mission, you've got to have a purpose, an objective. What is our mission? Let me say it in two ways. Number one, be strong, and number two, stand firm. The goal is not conquest in this text of Scripture. The goal is survival, steadfastness. Did you notice how many times the word stand is used? Verse 11, take your stand against the devil's schemes. And then down to verse 13, so that when the evil day comes, that is after the heat of battle, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm, therefore. Stand, stand, stand. I want you to stand your ground. Don't give up ground. Don't give in to the enemy. Now, some of us, at first blush, may say that's not a very enterprising goal. <laughs> Can't you have a little greater ambition than that? I, what's your goal? Just to survive. But that's exactly what Paul is saying. I like what Sinclair Ferguson says. We might think that the goal to stand in spiritual warfare is relatively insignificant. But the longer we experience ourselves the pressure of the spiritual battle, the more clearly we see that to remain standing after the heat of battle is not the result of our work, but a supernatural work of God in us. Take, take heed, you that think you stand, lest you fall. You see, often the problem is that we in our presumption don't think we need God for this battle. We can go it alone. And standing is not a big deal. I can take care of it myself. But you that think you stand, be careful. You're a prime candidate for the fall. And standing when the devil is attacking is God's work, not yours. You cannot do it yourself. And every morning you and I go out into the day without the armor of God on us and without a sense that this is a battle, we're already defeated. And maybe that's why the church is so anemic and our individual lives so powerless. I tell you, we have before us a rich portion of Scripture that has the possibility, if embraced by faith, to cause us to revolutionize our life. It's in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 9 where we read these words, If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. So it's standing by faith. John Bunyan, in his wonderful book, Pilgrim's Progress, 
wanting to highlight virtues of the Christian life gives names to different individuals. So you've got Christian and Mr. Good Hope, and one of the individuals is named Mr. Steadfast. That's a good thing. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Be steadfast and unmovable and always abounding in the work of the Lord. So verse 10 says, be strong. And verse 11 says, stand fast. That's your mission. That's your objective. The devil wants to take your ground. Make sure that he doesn't. And the battle is on. Game on. Here we go. In James chapter 4, verse 7, it says, resist the devil and he will flee. <laughs> Resisting is not so easy. Res resisting is harder work than you may think. And we have got to learn to say no. So here is our strategy. And we'll have time just to introduce it. Our enemy, we know. Our mission is clear. Our strategy, two commands given right at the very beginning. The first command is be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. And the second command is put on the full armor of God or put on all God's armor or the New Living Translation has put every piece of the armor on. Six pieces are going to be mentioned, and we're going to spend some time this summer looking at those pieces and exactly how to put them on. But notice our strategy is that we might be strong in his mighty power. I find it interesting that when you read the letters to the seven churches in the book of the Revelation, there's one church in which nothing bad is said of them. It's the church of Philadelphia. However, in the Lord's discussion with this church, he says, I know you have little strength. In the best of churches, there is little strength. In the best of believers, we are puny, or those people are puny and weak in the strongest of believers. If we underestimate the power of our enemy, we'll think we need no armor. If we overestimate our own power and strength, we'll think we don't need his might. But we need his might and we need his armor. And actually the second command explains the first. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. How? Put on the armor of God. It's God's might and it's God's armor and it's interesting, this coming together of divine power and human responsibility. God gives the power, but you've got to put it on. And that's the problem. Many days we go out into our battle undressed and without our weapons. Now I envision the Apostle Paul writing this letter in prison, right? A Roman prison, chained to whom? A Roman soldier. Now, I don't imagine this Roman soldier is wearing all of his armor as if he were in battle, but it's got to be close by in case they're called on in an emergency. The helmet, the sword, the breastplate, the belt that pulls it all together, 
the proper protection that shod the shoe, the feet. And the big shield wherewith they can stop the fiery darts of the enemy. Paul probably is writing, and you know, I envision at times he had a mental block. You say, well, he's being inspired by the Spirit. That doesn't mean he's in a trance in writing. He's thinking through what he's going to say. And maybe Paul is saying, this is, we're in a spiritual warfare, and hey, wait a minute, look at the armor that this Roman soldier has. There's a corollary here with the spiritual armor. And so he just makes use of what everyone knows. The armor of God. This command in verse 10 could be passive or middle. It may mean you be strengthened in his might, or it may mean you yourselves make yourselves strong by putting on the armor of God. And when we do, when we take his might for our might, we are strong. Ephesians chapter 1 says he's the one who has all kinds of power and that power works in us, even the power that raised him from the dead. By the way, did you notice here in Ephesians that the battlefield is called the heavenly realms? Verse, end of verse 12, for our struggle is not against human beings, but it's against supernatural beings. It's against the rulers and authorities and powers of the dark world, the spiritual forces of evil, where? In the heavenly realms. Now, who is seated in the heavenly realms? What have we been laboring to say in the first part of the book of Ephesians? We, when we trust Christ, we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Which simply means this, once you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you are now placed in the midst of the conflict. You are in the atmosphere where the heat of the battle is going on. There wasn't much of a battle before, before you were a Christian, but now you claim to be a follower of Christ, and once you do, the devil is all out to destroy you. And you are placed in Christ, in the heavenlies, right where the battle goes on. But here's the cool thing. Jesus reigns in the heavenlies. He was raised to conquer death and seated at the right hand of God and has power over all things, even in the heavenlies. We are living in the realm that Jesus has conquered. I think one of the most exciting things about this whole story is that we know Jesus has already won the battle. It doesn't mean that the war is over because we still are fighting, but Jesus has won the war. The realm where spiritual blessings are received is also the location where the ongoing spiritual battle takes place. Remember this. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Say that with me. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Do you believe that? That's where our victory is. It's in his might 
and in his armor. I have in my library one of my thickest books, almost three inches on the spine. It was written in 1655, although my copy is a reprint from the 1980s. When it was written originally, there were three volumes, 261 chapters, <laughs> over 1,400 pages written by a Puritan who was a pastor in a town in England, and his name was William Gurnall. The title of the book is The Christian's Complete Armor. I'll share with you the subtitle of the book, but I don't have enough time to do it right now. It's that long. And this whole book is the exposition of 11 verses that we're going to study this summer. So if you think three months is too long, it's going to be shorter than Gurnall's work. But I hope what we all get out of it is that we are in a great war that Jesus has already won. And we can fight it every day from the vantage point of victory if we'll simply put on the armor of God. Charles Wesley put it this way, Stand then in his great might with all his strength endued and take to arm you for the fight. What is it? The panoply. Of God, which is the Greek word for full armor. Put that on and you win. And I like to win. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your encouragement to us that this battle is yours. We are in it, we must fight it, but we fight it in your strength. We are in it, and we must fight it, but we fight it dressed in your armor. And the issue and outcome has already been determined. And yet the heat of the conflict today often discourages me and defeats me and fills me with feelings of wanting to quit, running and hiding. Lord, I pray that you will help each one of us today see that there is a real enemy who is out to destroy us, but we have an even greater Savior who is out to save us. And may we trust him with all of our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Would you stand with